Uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 5 to 8, we're going to look at. Revelation chapter 18, verse 5. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself, and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you that your spirit is our teacher. And we pray this morning that our hearts will be open to your truth, and I pray that you use me to share that truth. And we pray, most, more importantly, Lord, that we would accept that truth and live by it, and that today we would uh, leave this place challenged to live more for Jesus, our Lord and our Saviour. We may glorify his name, that it may be lifted up, and that this light that we have may reach the dark place in this world. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. A couple of weeks ago now, um, the sermon uh, that I gave uh, focused on separation and a focus on that verse in the, I think it was verse 4, come out of her, my people. And we spoke about how this world that we live in is, is being prepared for a time when there, when there will exist a one world government, a one world religion, and and we see this being played out at the moment. But this process that's going on, this uh, particular spirit that's feeding this, uh, this type of, uh, of, of uh, progress here, is something that's been going on for a very long time, indeed, all the way back to the, the Garden of Eden. And two weeks ago, as I said, God's appeal was for his people to come out of this false religion which was represented by, in this passage, the horror of Revelation. And there was a twofold warning that God gave, and it's the angel declared, that the warning, in essence, was to come out, lest you be partakers of her sins, lest you be involved with the same sins that she was uh, involved with, and lest, once God judges or begins judgment, that you end up on the receiving end of those judgments as well. So there was a warning for the believer here, for those who were somehow mixed up with this false religion. And God uh, and John, uh, the Apostle John calls this false religion, apart from the whole Babylon in this uh, particular passage and in the in previous uh, chapters. Now, most people, when you speak the word or say the word Babylon, are aware that it's a, uh, uh, it was representing also a kingdom wasn't it? And, and King Nebuchadnezzar was the one that Daniel spoke to and there was a Babylon in, in Daniel's day and Babylon had taken Israel captive as well and you might say well, why is God calling it Babylon in the future if there was a Babylon back then um, but I want to go back even before the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar I want to go back before that because there was a, a more of a foundational place that we find Babylon starting. And uh, for, in order for us to understand where it actually started, we need to understand what happened straight after the flood. Okay, so go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. 
Chapter 9, verse 18 says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. We are the descendants of these three men, these three sons. We, every person on this planet is a descendant of them. Now go to chapter 10, verse 8. We find this. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Now, there's a, there's a few things we want to take uh, note of here. Uh, we're given, we're given the, 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 the descendants in chapter uh, 9 and, and chapter 10 and, and indeed chapter 11 of Noah and his sons. And Nimrod was a descendant of one of these uh, children and he was the son of a fellow called Cush. Now, it says that Nimrod was a mighty one in the earth. He was regarded very highly, obviously someone of, of uh, uh, great charisma and someone of great strength because he was regarded as a mighty hunter. Now, just to, just to let you know, it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna. Obviously, he was so powerful a man that his kingdom encompassed many cities and just historically, if we go back historically, many of these cities that are mentioned here, surprisingly enough, have actually been excavated and discovered. Scholars, for instance, um, uh, used to say that Kalna was a mythical city, that it never existed until they excavated a tablet which said that, uh, that spoke of Kalna and it called it the city. There was a, a, a clay tablet they found and it was called the city of Nimrud. Okay. Go to chapter Genesis chapter 10 verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Divided? Does it mean they were divided? Go, go to chapter 11 verse 1. And this is the story of how they were divided. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Now remember whose kingdom this was in the land of Shinar? It was Nimrod's. Okay? And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with the ch uh, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, 
and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from hence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of all the earth. This is the story of the beginning of Babylon. And Babylon comes from the same name, Babel. And this was, if you look at this particular story, and I won't go into all the intricacies and because there's so much in this particular story. This, was, this city was being built in direct opposition to God's command, in direct rebellion. God had, had commanded that people spread over all the earth. And these guys decided, no, they weren't going to do that. They were going to get together under Nimrod's mighty hand and they were going to build a city. Actually, it's an interesting note, historically, is that the ancient Sumerians had an account of the whole human race having one language at one time. And the Mesopotamians also had an account of those languages or that language being divided as well. And every culture in the world has some legend of a worldwide flood, which is also an interesting thing. But back to Babel. Babel was founded by Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, 10, as we've read. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Nimrod is from a root word that means rebel. This guy was a rebel at heart and rebel. He, he did by leading God's people against God's command to spread over the earth and populate it. Nimrod is here described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And as I was thinking of this, and some, some interpreters or some theologians say that it was because he was a hunter of men's souls. But it doesn't necessarily say that. It said he was a mighty hunter. And I, and I thought back to the many legends that you find in, in, in history, in the, in the old or ancient cultures of mighty hunters. And this may be another story along those lines or maybe the original story. Um, who's aware of the, the, the story of Beowulf? Okay, Beowulf is a, a pretty old story and it's about a, a fellow who was a mighty hunter and he hunted... Um, uh, well, that... We would call them mythological creatures, but in, if you look at their descriptions, uh, many of them really sound like dinosaurs. And we know that just after the flood, that dinosaurs walked with men. We know that because they weren't extinct at that stage. And if you look at, if you look at the story of, uh, of, um, of Nimrod and the fact that he was a mighty hunter, you can imagine... okay. You can imagine uh, uh, people with small villages and uh, large reptilian uh, creatures uh, possibly threatening them. And someone like Nimrod could have made a very good name for himself as someone who, uh, who was able to uh, subdue these beasts and possibly kill them. And in fact, if you go to a lot of English uh, history, you find a lot of uh, men who were heroes in their hometowns because they were able to fend off these creatures 
So I think it's something to think about, although it's not something that we'd call doctrine. Okay? But anyway, in, in, in either way, Nimrod obtained for himself a, uh, a reputation as someone who was very strong, as someone who was possibly a, a, a protector of people. In the eyes of men, Nimrod was famous and someone that could be trusted and relied upon. And men, as a result, followed him and followed what he said. And in a sense, if you look at Nimrod, he's a forerunner, really, of the Antichrist. He led people away from God. People put their trust in him and followed what he said rather than following what the Lord had commanded. The Lord, in this case, had commanded them to spread, not to stay all together in one place. And Nimrod uh, managed to convince people the exact opposite. In Genesis 9.1, God had given a command directly to Noah. And he said, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And in direct opposition to that, in, in chapter 11 verse 4, they said... Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. It was in direct opposition to what God had wanted. Now the purpose of them building the city was to make a name for themselves. Once again, this is opposite to what the Lord had wanted. It's the opposite, especially of calling on the name of the Lord. And it means that their intent was to build a society that exalted them rather than exalted God. And this tower that they built wasn't just some sort of a skyscraper or some sort of a cultural icon that they had. This tower represented their rebellion. This tower was probably a, a centre of worship for them. A centre of worship that was false religion. So, they were in direct rebellion against God. They were defying God corporately as a people in cooperation with one another because they had a king called Nimrod in whom they could trust to protect them, to guide them, to, to keep them together and keep their fears at bay. But the scriptures tell us in Jeremiah, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the past places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. Instead of spreading themselves out into the world with God's, with a hope in the Lord as their shield, they did the exact opposite. Instead of trusting in God as they, as they departed and, and tried, to, tried to build lives for themselves further away from their comfort zone, let's say, hoping in God for providence and guidance, they chose to rebel and put faith in man and God would now have to drive them out. And they found that uh, they were in a much more difficult position from that point of view. 
The interesting thing is, if you, if you imagine it, that at one stage they were all of one language, right? Then all of a sudden they find themselves with different languages. And as a result of those different languages, they scatter because they don't understand each other. And obviously there would have been ones that spoke, that groups that spoke the same sort of language. They would have departed one way and the ones would have departed another way. But isn't it interesting that in defiance of God, they wanted to stick together, right? Then God simply confuses their languages and they scatter, okay? Now think of the result of that. Imagine for a moment if they had not openly rebelled against the Lord. How many languages would we speak today? One. There'd be one language that would be spoken. Those from that group would have spread across the world as God had had asked and the whole world would have been one language. Now let me ask you another question then. Go to the next step. If the whole world was of one language and everyone spoke that same language, how would that... What effect would that have on the world? Would it have a good effect or a bad effect? I don't think it would have a good effect, wouldn't it? Because most of the wars that have taken place between men has simply been because they don't understand each other. And who you don't understand or what you don't understand, you fear... Would there have been as much warfare and bloodshed? I don't think so. Would there have been as much prejudice in this world as we find and racism? I don't think so. When you look at the sin, you may have a tendency to wonder, was it really such a big deal that they were building the city together and they wanted to stay together? And maybe from the, from the world's point of view, it wasn't a big deal. People want to get together and, and protect each other and, uh, and, you know, and have safety in numbers. But in God's eyes, it was a big deal. In God's eyes, it was direct rebellion against his, his authority. And this rebellion, they looked for self-determination, self-governance and autonomy from God's will, from God's will and God's laws. Nowhere in the entire passage referring to the Tower of Babel is there found the slightest indication that the builders considered God's will for their plans. Now the Bible goes to great lengths to confirm God's disdain for society's self-ruling ecumenical pursuits, doesn't it? We find that very clear in, uh, in Revelation and the psalmist writes in, of God's intervention in humanity, humanity, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. Actually, there's an interesting comparison between, if you think about it, the, the way God scattered the people of Babel and the early church. Ever thought about those the two differences there? One government under Nimrod was the, the, was the cry in, uh, in Babel. Instead, the New Testament speaks of the church going out speaking other languages also as a sign that God had established his church in this world. There's a stark contrast. 
The city of Babel was in rebellion against God, correct? The disciples in the upper room were obeying what the Lord had commanded them, tarry in Jerusalem. The city of Babel was relying on the leadership of, of a man opposed to God. The disciples in the upper room were relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to come down upon them. The people of Babel were of one language which the Lord confused. The disciples in the upper room were of one language, but then God gave them many languages so they could share the gospel into all parts of the world. The people of Babel were scattered across the globe because of their disobedience. The disciples were sent into the world to preach the word and the gospel. But they were also scattered by persecution. God judged the city of Babel because she sought to become a city without God as its head. And now we find the judgment of God upon this city in Revelation called Babylon. A name taken from the same Babel. A nation which had already been judged by God after Israel had been taken into captivity during Nebuchadnezzar's days. This thing and the picture we have here is it's never really died. It's never died. Even though they, they left off from finishing that city, it's maintained in men's... It's, it's, it's been a theme that's been constant in men's hearts and will be all the way to the end. That men would rather rely on themselves and be free of God than to rely on God and to be under his authority. Babylon had already been judged by God during Nebuchadnezzar's days, or after Nebuchadnezzar, sorry. It had been judged and overthrown, and now, in Revelation, during the tribulation days, God was going to judge Babylon again. Which is maybe why, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, the angel cries out with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen. Second time, she's fallen. We're now going to look at the judgment of the whore based upon three principles or laws found in the Bible concerning God and man. And the first is the law of remembrance. Turn to Revelation chapter 18 verse 5. Revelation 18 verse 5. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. God's actions during the history of this world with people before the flood, after the flood, with Babylon, Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, teach us that corrupt systems that men set up in this world to govern themselves and, and, to, and to keep God out of the picture eventually are judged by God. Judgment always comes and any system that men set up will eventually be judged if it's not according to God's law. The principle here, the law of remembrance, is that God does not ignore or forget sin. There is nothing that escapes God's notice. But God, we find, does not judge every sin immediately. And that's good for us, actually. Because if God judged every sin, sin as soon as it took place, you and I would be in a pretty bad situation. 
we find ourselves in hell already. But there is nothing that escapes his notice. In history we find, and even with people, we find that God permits the incremental build-up of sin until it gets to a point when he says, that's enough. And it's not that he forgets sin. It's not that, not that he says, oh, oh, now I remember. There's something going on down there at Babel. There's something going on down there with the Antichrist. It's not that God ever forgets anything. It's because he knows and he keeps track of and he knows what the limit is when he will come down and judge. The first Babel, we find the people building a tower unto heaven, don't we? Which is in direct rebellion against God. And in this Babylon we find where God's judging, it says her, her sins have piled up to heaven. They not only built a, a, a building, they actually, their sins were so high they, they reached heaven and God remembers those sins. God's remembering is an active thing. It leads to judgment. It's a reckoning that God makes when the ledger is full and God makes the judgment. In a similar way, God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this case, their sin was so grievous that the, the cries went out up to heaven. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read out Genesis 18. Genesis eighteen twenty says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. In a similar way, Babylon's sins caused a cry for justice. Just as the shedding of Abel's blood, and the Lord said that his blood cries out to me from the ground, Babylon has shed the blood. And the Bible, and, and the Bible says that Babylon, this whore, was responsible for the, the, all those who were slain, who were God's people, prophets and saints. So her sins had reached such an amount that the cry went out up to God. And it's the same thing that's going to happen on her that happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. What does this mean for the unbeliever? What does this principle, law of remembrance, mean for unbelievers? Well, it basically means that God will not forget the smallest sin that people commit. Every sin will be brought to justice. Every sin. And the average person may think, well, you know, I haven't killed anyone or I haven't done anything. But you know the Bible teaches? The Bible says... That And our Lord says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. See, men, people, have a tendency to, to downplay God's laws, to make some more important and to make some less important. Because the ones, obviously, that they, that they break, the ones that they break, aren't as important as the ones that they don't. But God says that every idle word will be brought to justice. Think about that. Every time you've, you've, you've complained to yourself, every time you've, you've uttered a word that wasn't right, God will bring it to justice. For the unbeliever, that's bad news. That's bad news. Because there is absolutely no way that anyone on this planet can stand before a righteous God and say, I am just. I'm right. Because everyone's 
broken his laws and every idle word is judged. What does it mean for the believer? Well, for the believer, it means that your sins have already been judged. That's good news. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We can rejoice today because our sins have been paid for. Those idle words that we have spoken and will speak, unfortunately, have been paid for. We are blessed because God has declared this truth for us. For as the, he- the, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That's a blessing, isn't it? The fact is that God the Father has already judged our sin upon his Son. And the blood of his Son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, so we don't have to suffer that judgment. Next point I want to uh, express to you is the law of retribution or vengeance or revenge. In Revelation 18.6, it says, Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works in the cup which she has filled, filled to her double. There's a scriptural imperative that God tells the believer, we are not to take revenge. Is that true or not? And Jesus goes so far as to say, if someone slaps you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 17. We'll see what Paul tells us about that, this topic. Romans 12 verse 17 says Recompense to no man evil for evil Provide things honest in the sight of all men If it be possible as much as lieth in you live peaceably with all men Dearly beloved avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay saith the Lord and this is what God is talking about here in in Revelation. God is taking vengeance. He's repaying Babylon. Our confidence should be in the Lord. And if we have that confidence in the Lord, we have the confidence that God doesn't only just never forget sin, but he brings sin always to justice. And he remembers those sins committed against his own people. God never forgets those sins. In this case specifically, we find that God avenges his people against the system that has brought many of them to their deaths. 
He's judging it here, this system, and those who lead it, who are guilty of these atrocities. In Revelation 17 and 6, just to remind you, it says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered. And once again, it's repeated in Revelation chapter 18, verse 24, And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints, and of all that was slain upon the earth. This system has been responsible for all the murders. And God is about to judge it. God repays. We should always remember as Christians, it's not our place to take vengeance. It's never our place to repay evil for evil. God never asks us to do that. God says, leave it to him. We are meant to live peaceably with all men. We are meant to pray for those who persecute us. We are meant to do good to those that hate us. That's a high calling on our part. But the more we live like that, the more we are showing that we trust that God will judge rightly at the end. If you can't do that, if you can't live a life of grace where you overlook and you don't repay evil for evil, what you're saying is that you don't trust that God will judge properly at the end and you have to do it instead. Think about that. And the final one is the, uh, the law of relative punishment. Verse 7 and 8 in Revelation chapter 18 says, How much she hath glorified herself and hath lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plague come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. God will proportion the punishment he gives based on the measure of wickedness, pride and security and self-security. Because in verse 7 he says, How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. There is a, a comparison there. There is a, a relative judgment there based on how much she has glorified herself and robbed God of his glory. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. She has assumed the position of a queen. She has glorified herself and so to the same degree that she has rebelled against God, he retaliates in holy and righteous indignation to dethrone her. A queen. A queen is someone who is very powerful. A queen is someone who is self-sufficient, in need of nothing, absolutely sovereign. And she says, I am no widow. I shall see no sorrow. A widow. A widow is someone who has lost a husband. A widow is, is someone who is, who is grieving for someone that she is committed to and who is committed to her. And now Babylon says, I am no widow. I'm not going to see any sorrow. Babylon, on the other hand, has illicit love affairs. 
with all the kings of the world. How can she become a widow? They're all madly in love with her, but not really. Because she's shown herself to be a harlot who just sells herself. And they love her not for herself, but what they can get from her. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 6 as we see the judgment that God placed on Babylon. And I want you to, to notice the direct comparison there. Now as we read this passage... Jeremiah chapter 51 we're going to read from 6 to 7 I want you to keep in mind the passage in Revelation and I want you to notice the similarities God has already judged Babylon and God will judge it again flee out of the midst of Babylon verse 6 and deliver every man his soul be not cut off in her iniquity for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance he will render unto her a recompense. Already in that first verse, we find, don't be cut off in her iniquity. Remember the, remember the warning that God gave the believer? Come out of her, my people, lest you partake of, be partakers of her sins and be partakers of the judgment. And this is exactly the same wording here. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. It's the Lord who is going to repay Verse 7, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her, take balm for her pain, if so be she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her, and let us go every one into his own country, for her judgment reacheth unto heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. Notice any similarities between that and God's judgment on the horror of Revelation? It's almost identical. It's almost identical. God has already judged Babylon, the empire Babylon. And God is going to judge this whole corrupt system because she has still spread herself around the globe this false religious system that has linked itself to a political system but as we've seen Babylon has its roots back in Genesis in Babel and it's, it's persistently rid up its ugly head and will find its culmination in the end Babel foreshadows a worldwide empire that God will judge at the end of the age. God's judgment on Babel demonstrated his sovereignty over human plans. He permits humans to go their own way, but within limits. He will allow humans to try to unite in this way, but then he will intervene in judgment because the plan is destructive to us. Notice how in Babel they tried to keep together and stay together. Well, that's what's happening now. All the religions of the world are trying to unite together. The political systems of this world are trying to unite together to form one world government. The same thing is happening now 
as it was happening in Babel. Nimrod and Babel foreshadow the culmination of rebellious humanity's attempt to unite the whole world at the end of the age. For a short time, the whole world will come under one ruler, the Antichrist, one economy, one religion. God calls this mystery Babylon because it is the fulfilment of Babel that is hidden until the end. This kingdom is described as a harlot because she seduces people away from God and to herself and into spiritual adultery. This is the warning that the Lord will give to those who during the tribulation are in its clutches. But it applies to us as well. From the beginning, Satan has used means and ways to lure men away from trusting in God to trusting in everything else in this world. Whether it's power, money, greed, relationships, whatever else it may be, politics, religious, uh, religion, Satan has used every possible means to draw men away from simply trusting in God. And God has, through the ages, simply made that call to trust in Him. When Jesus, God's only Son, came into this world, He gave the same message. Trust in Him. Don't trust in in religious uh, organisations. Don't trust in politics. Don't trust in power or wealth or anything else. Don't trust in yourself. We're the last people we should trust. Instead, the Lord wants us to forsake this world and to rely on Him. To conclude this, um, this, uh, this sermon today, I want to read one passage from uh, Isaiah. It's probably one of the most beautiful passages in, in the whole of Scripture. It's Isaiah chapter 55. I want, I want us to read it together. And as we read this chapter today, and I'm gonna, this is going to be the, uh, the thing. This is going to be my altar call in a sense today. This, this chapter is going to be the way I finish it off. Okay? But I want you to think of, is the Lord speaking to me here? As we read this passage, I want you to, to think about very clearly, is this relate to me? Is this something that's in my life that, that, that's not right? Am I putting my trust in things other than God today? Open your heart to God's truth. Open your mind to what, he, what he's telling you. Have a listen to these words. Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delighteth itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, 
I have given him for a witness of the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, (coughs) and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be for the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. There is much here... That speaks directly to us this morning. Has it spoken to you? If there's anything you need to do, it's to get right with God. If there's any area area in your life that you have not trusted Him with, now is the time to trust Him with it. Are there things that are hard to let go? Let them go. God is trustworthy, is He not? There is nothing that He has promised that He cannot fulfill. And that he won't fulfill. God is all powerful, all knowing, all sovereign, and all loving. Let's learn to trust him more each day. Thank you, Brother Don.